0: Aquania Escarne is the founder and CEO of RRD Investments, a real estate investment company focused on leveraging the power of real estate to create generational wealth. She owns almost a million dollars in real estate in Maryland, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. Aquania also recently launched a new website, thepurposeofmoney.com for women focused on building generational wealth for their families. Welcome to The Thought Card, a podcast about travel and money, where planning, saving, and creativity leads to affording travel, building wealth, and paying off debt. We are the Financially Savvy Travelers. So Aquania, one of the things that I truly truly find inspiring from your story is that you have almost $1 million in real estate investment as your portfolio. So can you give us a snapshot of what your current portfolio looks like when it comes to real estate?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, currently, it's all buy and hold properties and uh, mostly started based on places where we lived, except for one, Uh, And I actually just sold a rental and I'm holding on to the capital to see what I want to invest in next. Um, But I was in Philadelphia and now I just have property in Maryland and
0: Virginia. Very, very interesting. So for those who don't know what buy and hold means, can you explain what buy and hold means?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So buy and hold is when you purchase a house. With the intention of renting it out and holding on to it for a while so that you are able to maximize on the cash flow from the property. And cash flow is essentially the money you have left over after you've paid your expenses regarding the property. So that could be your mortgage, your insurance, and then from time to time, whatever repairs you make. All of that is subtracted from what you make out of rent. And then what's left over is your cash flow.
0: I want to go back a little bit to the fact that you decided to buy real estate properties where you lived. What made you decide to to get started doing that? So it's, it wasn't really a science
1: or an intention to become a real estate investor in the beginning. Uh, while we were dating, actually, my husband purchased a home in Maryland. And then when we got married, that's where we lived together. And after a couple of years in the house, my job sent me to live in Dubai for three years. And we knew that we didn't want to sell the home because unfortunately my husband purchased at the height of the market around 2006. And so we, at that time, owed more on the home than we knew we could sell it for. So we essentially decided that we were gonna turn it into a rental property. So we, uh, got a property manager's assistance in finding a tenant and getting the home rented. And we packed all our stuff up and moved to Dubai.
0: Wow. So it's kind of like life happens and then that's kind of what started this whole this whole entrepreneurial side. That is true. Um, and now I
1: really think that's how I approach properties. It's not necessarily about the deal, but it's about, whether or not you could rent that property out in the future. So um, when we came back from Dubai in 2015, that's when I asked my husband, can we deliberately purchase a property with some of our savings for the purpose of renting it out? So not living in it. And I found a business partner who was willing to split the cost with me. So um, interestingly enough, at my job, I was talking to a coworker who had gone to school in the Philadelphia area. And she was telling me about how she misses being in Philly, but we work in DC. So she goes to Philly every weekend or just about every other weekend with her husband. And I said, boy, doesn't that get expensive? I mean, where are you staying? And she said, oh, um, hotels can be pricey, but we're actually going to purchase, we just purchased our own home and the mortgage is only like $350 a month. And at first I said, can you repeat that? Cause I don't think you said that right. And she said, no, I'm serious. Like we bought a house because it was cheaper to live in our own house in Philadelphia every other weekend than to stay in a hotel. And that's when I immediately said to her, Tell me more about these numbers, <laughs> um, as far as the monthly cost versus the potential profit, uh, and at that time, you could rent a property in Philadelphia for about nine hundred to twelve hundred dollars a month on a house that had a three hundred and fifty dollar mortgage. So that all sounded good. And the second question I asked her was, well, who's your real estate agent, and can I have their information?" And I called him right away. And the first weekend we went up to Philadelphia, we saw five properties in one day and ended up putting an offer on one of the homes. And that was our first
0: out-of-state property in Philadelphia. That's very, very interesting. Now, when you were thinking about buying your real estate property in Philadelphia, did you have any concerns or thoughts about like, how is this going to work? I don't live here. What were your thoughts on that? Of course. So,
1: I was a little nervous, but one of the benefits to going with someone that was referred to me was he had a lot of knowledge about the local rental market. He wasn't just a real estate agent, but he had also been an agent for a lot of investors. And at the time his company also offered property management services. So he packaged it as an opportunity to get involved, but also to have the support you needed. So access to contractors, access to property manager, access to knowledge about the market, or at least steps to kind of get you started. And so that helped everyone involved feel a little more comfortable about it. And then again, um, we still did our due diligence. So I, I can't even tell you how many times I drove to Philly the first maybe six months to a year of just getting the property ready. Um, we ended up just for background purchasing a property that an estate was selling. So basically the owner of the home had passed away and his children were no longer interested in maintaining the home and decided to sell it. And because we were offering cash, they were more eager to sell it and negotiate the price. So we got a really good deal. And the house, being an older row house in Philly, it did require a little bit of upgrades, but one of the plus sides was the previous owner had lived there since 1980, around about, and had kept up the house, pretty, pretty well. So we only did basically cosmetic upgrades. We changed the floors, painted. Um, we added, you know, a new stove and some new cabinets just to give it a newer looking feel. Um, but for the most part, didn't really do any other work. Uh, we changed the carpet, but left the bathrooms the same, left the bedrooms the same and proceeded
0: to rent it like that. I love that you talked about having the cash aspect and how having cash made it so much more attractive to the seller than going through like mm-hmm. a mortgage and all of that process. Because having getting a mortgage is really intense. It's a very intense process. Absolutely. And I would actually,
1: for full disclosure, I believe in Philly, if you're buying a home to live in it and you're getting a mortgage that's at that time, less than $50,000, you could potentially get it, but it would be a lot harder because for the bank, there's just really not a lot of money to be made. But as an investor who knows you're not going to live in it, you're going to have even harder time trying to get a bank to want to put down that, that type of investment for you. So cash is really king when you're looking at properties, you know, 50,000 or less. I would even say maybe 60,000 or less. Cash just becomes a, a not only a, a bargaining chip that you can use to negotiate the price when you have a motivated seller, but it's just also allows you to kind of take the strings of a mortgage out of the process. Um, but it was definitely something we had available because my husband and I had really saved Uh, since the beginning of our marriage and so that money was money we had saved over seven eight years and it was enough that we were able in that year in 2016 we purchased a philly home but then we also purchased a home for ourselves in virginia
0: at this point you have the original home for your husband you have the new home in philly and you purchased a home in virginia so now you're at three Yes. Very, very cool. Very cool. All right. So let's say someone's listening to this episode right now and they're like, Aquania, that sounds all great and good. You've had seven years to save to build up your, you know, savings that you can buy this property. But how about if someone has a thought like, okay, I don't have that much savings and like it sounds like, let's say saving fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 as an investor sounds like a bit much. What would you tell someone who has those thoughts?
1: Well, I would tell them don't give up if you're really interested. Uh, learn more about investing through podcasts, through education and meeting mentors. But then also there's other ways to get involved. So last year I started investing in real estate uh, trusts, which are REITs. And that's similar to stock in a sense like you purchase shares of a larger portfolio where other investors are also putting their money. But then there's this third party who takes that money and uses it to purchase commercial or Um, residential real estate, and they manage it and do all the work for you. They handle the repairs. So that's another way to be invested in real estate, but you don't have to be responsible for the day-to-day activities or the day-to-day repairs. And so I spent some time looking into different real estate investment trusts, And I found one that I thought was best for me. Uh, It allowed you to come in at a minimum of $1,000, but you could do as much as you want and um, very little, you know, very little pressure to put a lot of cash. And so that's one way that you can also be invested in real estate. So you know that what your initial investment was, and you can kind of estimate what your profits will be. So that's one way to get involved. But saving uh, is a great way to do it. If you don't want to save or you feel like you need to get started sooner, partnerships are another way. Like I said, for the Philly house, I acquired a partner to help split the cost with me. So it was you know, a cash investment, but I didn't have to come up with all the cash by myself. And so what I would say about that, though, is just be careful about who you partner with. Make sure you both are on the same page. You know, I had documents in place that solidified each person's responsibility, both financially and as well as administratively, because when you're out of state, you have to apply for Rental licenses, you have to set up business documents that allow you to operate in Philadelphia, for example. So I had to make sure that we both knew who was responsible for what paperwork, who was responsible for filing taxes, and then who was responsible for what financial uh, obligations. And we had agreed to split the profits and the cost 50-50 before we even put $1 into the process. And so a lot of people think Oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to find a partner and get started right away. But I actually recommend you get the terms down first and then you start to put your money into the process.
0: That's a great that's a great tip. Great, great tip. Definitely making sure you're on the same page and also making sure that you have the documents and legal documents in place to make sure that you're both protected. So I would
1: say uh, mortgages are not a bad thing, especially in areas where the property may be more expensive and you don't necessarily have enough money to purchase it outright. So I'm, I don't want to give the impression I don't have any mortgages. We do have mortgages on the Maryland and the Virginia property but we had to come up with some down payment. So even when it comes to a mortgage, it's less money, but you still may need a little bit in the skin in the game by putting money down in the form of a down payment.
0: Right. Now, I've heard that if you buy your first property and you actually live in it, you get one rate for your mortgage. But then for the second property that you have that they know it's an investment property, the rates are different. Is that true? That is correct.
1: Yes, that is correct. So you have to just think of it from the bank's perspective. And this is if you go to a bank or even if you go to a hard money lender, because there are some, what we call investors who are willing to give out their own money to help other investors purchase property, to flip property, which is when you renovate it and sell it. And so in both of those circumstances, they want to make money, that's why they're doing it. So when it comes to a bank, they're gonna offer a first time home buyer or a a home buyer who's gonna live in the property a lower, more traditional interest rate because they wanna encourage home ownership and they know that most of the time when you're living in it, you're going to do your best to stay in that home and pay the mortgage according to the terms, whether it's 15 years or 30, right? But when it comes to an investment, a lot of things can happen and they're taking on some risk because you could potentially think it's really cool to be a real estate investor. And then once you deal with tenants or maybe an eviction, you don't think it's so cool anymore and you want to walk away. And then they're stuck with either a property or an unpaid mortgage or both. So investors tend to pay slightly higher interest rates for mortgages that are on specifically investment properties. But depending on the time of the market or what interest rates are, they may not be that much higher. For example, when I've shopped rates before, say a traditional rate for a home you were gonna live in was between three and 5%, but then the interest rate for an investment property I've seen as low as 7%, but I've seen as high as 14%. If it's another investor trying to loan you money just so you can potentially buy it renovate it and then sell it within six months, you're going to see 14% or 12% interest rates for things like that.
0: So do you prefer to buy and rent or do you prefer to flip and why? I prefer to buy and rent because to be honest, flips kind of make
1: me nervous. But interestingly enough, the Philadelphia house, we thought OK, changing floors, changing, you know, paint and um, cabinets is not really a huge renovation. But when you think about it, it kind of was. I mean, we still had to do essentially what anyone who flips homes does. We had to find good contractors. We had to monitor their work. We had to deal with anything that popped up. So, for example, uh, when you buy a house that was built in the 1900s and you remove the floors, you never know what's underneath. And so one of the surprises we had was termites underneath the some of the joists that were inside one level of the floor. So we had to treat for the termites, bring in somebody to take care of that and then rebuild part of the floor so that you could put sustainable, prettier, newer flooring on top of it. So um, cash is good for that because uh, we had what we would call a renovation budget and we had set aside what we thought the renovation would take, but we also had a 10% buffer, which was extra money we had put aside in the event we had any surprises. And so that's what we used to cover the treatment of termites, for example, when we found them under the flooring.
0: Wow. That sounds like uh, a nightmare. (laughs) 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 <laughs> but it's truly what happens. Like it, it you it looks pretty and then you're like, let's just take a peek and then it's like, whoa. But it's important for you to know these things and it does take it does take money to make the repairs so that you could put the house in a better condition. Exactly.
1: Um but I am interested in flips. I just haven't done one. Um, my father who really inspired me to get into real estate investing, he has done both, uh, purchasing homes for rental properties and flipping them. And he really makes it seem like a flip is not very complicated. It just requires, you know, timing and dedication and, and management of the process. But I feel like if you're going to get into flipping houses, one, you need to be mentally prepared for it and you need to have the time because you can't be hands off on that process. You really need to make sure that contractors who you make agreements with and establish contracts with will do the work when they say they're going to do it. You have to inspect it in phases and make sure it's done so that it's not a bad flip and you have, you know, it looks pretty, but it's shoddy underneath. So. That's something I say, if you want to get into flips, definitely make sure you have the time. And I would even say a mentor um, that can kind of walk you through the process because what you don't learn from a mentor, you will definitely learn from mistakes. And when it comes to real estate investing, mistakes tend to cost money. And so that's where also you know access to either your own savings or other people's financial support is where it comes in handy because you're going to, like I said, you're going to learn from mentors or you're going to learn from mistakes. And it helps if you have the resources to kind of get through that.
0: I love that. I love that. That's very, very powerful and something that I personally hadn't thought about getting mentors, but it definitely makes sense. And the fact that mistakes cost money and If you want to lessen, you know, lessen your load of expenses, definitely getting the knowledge up front and making the right decisions matters. Be a little gentle on yourself because things are going to happen that you can't plan for,
1: predict, or even learn. But when they do, it's a matter of how do you go forward from here, Uh, hopefully encouraged, not discouraged, empowered, and then asking a lot of questions. I mean, at the end of the day, you won't be the first real estate investor who has a surprise happen in the process and you won't be the last. So I think it's helpful when you can bounce those questions off for other people as well.
0: Right, right. Now let's talk about the emotional piece because I know as a homeowner, I'm very emotionally attached to my home. And even sometimes when I'm thinking about maybe I want to sell it, there's still this like peace you know, there's an attachment, a love, a longing there. As a real estate investor, do you have an emotional attachment to your properties or do you just keep it like this is business and moving on? This is,
1: <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. I think they're all business acquisitions, to be honest. I, even the home that my family is living in now and we're creating memories in, I still consider an investment that if somebody came along and offered me the right price, I would sell it to them. That's exactly my mindset when we got an offer on the literally two months ago on the Philly property. Is does it make sense? Am I making more money than when I bought it? And will I be able to reinvest what I make into something else. And so I would honestly tell you, my husband probably thinks this differently about this, but the home we have now, I have personalized it to an extent, but when we were looking, I intentionally chose a home that wasn't too big, and wasn't too small. I made sure that we had the extra bathrooms that would be very attractive to a buyer and also no more than four bedrooms because there, it's harder to sell larger homes in the area where I purchase, And it's harder to rent larger homes in the area I purchased. So I was very intentional in the bedrooms, the bathrooms, and the square footage.
0: Okay. Now this is really interesting. So Someone like me, who's very personally attached to my home, how do I switch my mindset or begin to reframe my mindset where I can be at the point where it's like, if someone does come around and they want to drop a bag, I could be like, okay, let's do this. And I don't know, I guess for me, there's a part of me that's like, I know, like I I think when I bought the home, I knew I didn't want to do a lot of moving Like, I think back in the day, people had a starter home and then they would grow into it. And I just wanted to have something and I can just grow into that and not have to look outside again. But again, in this market, like I bought at a time where my equity has shot in through the roof and it would make sense to sell, but there's this emotional piece that's holding me back. So do you have any advice for someone like me? If you are
1: genuinely that attached to your home, then that is probably the home you should keep in your family and pass down to the next generation and the generation after that. Because It sounds like it's something that could add value to your family's fortune and wealth, but it's not something you're ready to let go of. But I promise you, if the right number is offered, I I think you could find another home that'll bring you joy and happiness, Um, but it really just depends on the market. And I've seen people who, because they know even with equity, that that's still not going to get them another home that they can that can meet their family needs or that they can afford, sometimes they stay in the homes for that reason. Because when your house has gone up, probably other houses have too. Um, But I, I honestly think you have to have the mindset from the beginning that this is what this house means to me, or the money has to be so good that you really can't give it up. Because I I just feel like otherwise you're committing to keep that house in your in your family. And um, there's people who that's what they want. I mean, there's definitely, I do aspire to pass down wealth to my children and I want to keep that wealth into our family and create a legacy through real estate. Um, but I don't necessarily feel like they have to live in this house generation after generation where I am now just because I'm, I, like I said, I'm not that, attached to it that I wouldn't sell it. But I also feel like if, you know, maybe 20, 30 years from now, when I have grandchildren and they're in this home, I might feel differently. But for those who are in homes now, like you who are really attached to it, I think once you make a decision that, Hey, this is a good time to sell because I would profit from it really, or I'd be able to get something better or more suited for what my next step is, then I would say it's okay to be attached to the home, but maybe you are more intentional about who you sell it to. So I've had uh, friends and family who... They have really taken who they sell their home to seriously because of the emotional attachment. So they may do creative things like ask prospective buyers to provide a letter of what they intend to do with the home or, or if they intend to live in it themselves. And maybe in those cases, you make sure you sell to a nice, wholesome family, but you may not sell to another investor because you know that they're going to flip it or they're, they're potentially going to give it to another investor for the purpose of entrepreneurship. So that's, I guess, another way you can kind of approach it. So in real estate, we say you always need to have a couple of exit strategies. That means three or four scenarios that you might take advantage of if you no longer want this property, right? And one of them is to rent it. And so another would be to sell it. Another would be to uh, sell it to another investor versus selling it to, to a private, you know, citizen who wants to live in it. Um, and or, and I would say in situations like that, they those are potentially good rentals, but you have to find the right tenant. Whereas it wouldn't be a good property to sell necessarily if no one is potentially looking in that area because they might need good schools and it doesn't have good schools. But I would say. Whenever it comes to your exit strategy, you should run what we call the numbers. So if you said, hey, I want a different house in a different neighborhood and I now have the money to do it, um, but I don't know what to do with this house, before you decide to rent, maybe you should look at can you sell it? What it? What are other houses in your neighborhood going for? Uh, when is the last time a house sold? What type of family was it sold to? Uh, sometimes you'll find there might be another buyer who's just like you, who doesn't necessarily want to consider schools right now because they don't have children and they want a starter home that they can afford and they want a place of their own. And so they're going to have just as much pride in purchasing your home than they would somewhere else. But if that maybe the prices aren't good, or you're not able to sell for the price you need to pay off the mortgage and move away with a little bit of uh, profit, then make it a rental. But just be very intentional in uh, making that net that you cast for that tenant wide, you know, posting or using a property manager to help you find the ideal tenant who that's what they want and need. Because again, tenants don't necessarily apply to live somewhere if they don't want to live in that home. So you know, you're going to attract the people who want to be there. And then by renting it, you still are able to make money off of the property and you still have it in your assets, but you're not living there anymore. So you don't have to necessarily deal with the day to day.
0: I am very inspired and attracted to the FIRE movement. And perhaps some of my audience members might be as well. And the FIRE movement is the financial independence retire early. And you could just be on the financial independence wagon where you just want to, you know tap away from a nine to five job perhaps, or you want to retire early and you want to like say, you know, drop out of the industry. Either way, I'm on this fire path for myself. And one of the things that I know would be beneficial is getting rid of the mortgage. Now for me as a homeowner, the mortgage is one of my biggest expenses every month. So Having that taken out would be a big relief, which means that I don't necessarily have to take home as much money, and that opens up a a huge door of opportunity. Now, if you're at a place, like you're a young millennial, you're doing the things, just bought a house, but you're not really sure, you know, life can take you in different directions, is it worth it at this point to work on paying off your mortgage as soon as possible? So you raised a good point, and it's one that
1: I'm constantly d- having discussions with um, with other people. Of those who, it's not just even the fire movement. Like some people who also follow Dave Ramsey believe that you know you should put paying off your mortgage a high priority, so you don't have to pay a mortgage, not even if you retire early, but in retirement at all, right? And then you have other people who say, oh, the interest rates on mortgages are so low, it'd be better to take. Any extra money you're going to put in your mortgage and invest it in the stock market and you'll get a greater return and then you can just pay your house over 15 or 30 years and who cares about the interest because you made it somewhere else. I would actually say it really depends on what are your five, 10 and long term goals, right? Five year, 10 year and long term goals. And the reason I say that matters is because if you are on the FIRE movement or the the financial independence movement, your goal is to lower your costs. And so, yes, paying off your mortgage, which for most people, including me, that's my biggest expense every month, would bring so much money back to your budget. It'll also give you a lot more options. I know uh, a couple right now who paid off their primary mortgage and now they're traveling all over the world this year because they have literally only real estate taxes to pay for. And in my case, I would say the same thing. Paying off my mortgage, I get all this money back into my budget. I could invest that money. I could use it to um, leave money for my children or do other things, but I wouldn't have to pay a mortgage. But if you're a millennial and you're not quite sure what you're gonna be doing in five years or you haven't even created a plan for that, I would say, hey, sit still, pay your mortgage every month, pay it on time, but don't pay it off quickly until you know for a fact that the return of that income is going to help you meet some greater goal. And the reason I say that is because, you know, if you're going to potentially move in five years and you do not want to be a landlord under any circumstances and you're going to sell it, it really doesn't make sense to put your extra money into your mortgage because you're just putting it into something that you can't get it out of quickly. Uh, So another option that I like to provide people is called a mortgage fund, where every time you put the money in that account, sort of keep tally of, hey, this is an extra $2,000 or $3,000, right? And you put it in that account. And then once you've figured out what you wanna do, and if it means selling your house or paying off your house is the best idea, use the mortgage fund to pay off your house. But if you're going to sell the house and it's no incentive to putting the extra money on your mortgage, then sell the house, hopefully make a profit and you still have the money in your mortgage fund to do whatever you want. So the mortgage fund really gives you freedom to be flexible and it also gives you access to this additional you know, emergency money so that one day if you genuinely need the money, because when it's in your home, you have to refinance to access it. And sometimes that involves closing costs and other fees. But when you have it in your mortgage fund, all you have to do is make a withdrawal.
0: So, Kwania, you have a very interesting personal story of how your grandpa taught you the importance of leaving your family a legacy. Can you share that with us?
1: This is a story that I just published on
0: thepurposeofmoney.com. It's called Show Love, Share
1: Legacy. And I published it on Valentine's Day because... I really wanted to share the story of how my grandfather instilled in me the importance of building a legacy and leaving your family something. My grandfather was in construction most of his life and he passed uh, two years ago, but prior to passing, he did several very important things. One of them was he sat down with me and gave me paperwork that showed that he was leaving me something. And I can't tell you how important that made me feel, but it also had a greater sense of pride because he had worked so hard in an industry where it's very labor intensive. And although he wasn't personally a millionaire, he had set aside money that grew um, in an investment account that he was leaving just for me and gave me what I needed to know that it was there, but also to claim it when the time came. And I'd have to say my grandfather is such a forward thinker because he gave me the paperwork almost 10 years prior to his passing. Um, but I, uh, unfortunately in the later years of his life, he also suffered from dementia. So He wouldn't have necessarily been able to tell me that this stuff existed had he waited until he was older and thought that maybe he was closer, you know, to dying. So in that circumstance alone, I tell people all the time if you're going to leave something, start early. When you save over time, it grows, but then tell the people you're leaving it for them so they know it exists. No beneficiary should find out that they're getting an inheritance by surprise. And the other thing that's really important that I learned from him through this lesson is that the amount is not necessarily as important as the intention. You know, um, it was a gift, it wasn't a lot of money, but like I said, because he started early, it grew over time, and it's still growing. Uh, when my grandfather passed away, I claimed the investment, and I was given the opportunity to basically keep it invested um, in the stock market. And because he died over 70, it is a, a individual retirement account that does require what they call minimum uh, withdrawals every year. They're called required minimum distributions. So although I'm not 70, (laughs) my grandfather was over 70. And so every year he had to take out money from this account. And now every year I have to take out money from the account. So every February, which is not only in line with the anniversary of his death, but it's also Valentine's Day, uh, is when I get my annual gift from grandpa. And it reminds me of him his legacy and what really matters. And my family and I take that money and we do something special in honor of him, or we save it, um, and just find a way to kind of use it to remember him. And so I want to do the same thing for my family. I've already started, uh, saving for my kids, saving for their future by investing in real estate. I'm also saving for their future. And I feel like if he can do it, anyone can.
0: That's a beautiful, beautiful, touching story. And one of the biggest takeaways from that is that your grandpa was a forward thinker and he instilled forward thinking in you. And that's, that's leaving, that's, that's actually more than something monetary. That's actually like a mindset and something that I'm sure your kids will appreciate. And it's just, that's how the legacy builds and continues. So I really appreciate it. And I love that so much. Now, can you share ways that, let's say someone is interested in building a legacy for their families that they can get started, simple ways that they can get started? So tip number one is to get life insurance. And
1: the reason I say this is because I am personally determined to see the end of GoFundMe accounts for funerals, especially for communities of color. I feel that as someone who sells life insurance, I know that for some people, you can get an insurance policy for $20 or less in some cases, depending on your age and health. So there really is no reason why someone should not have a life insurance policy if it's only going to cost them $20 a month or you know $50 a month depending on their age and health and the reason this is so important is because you cannot predict your future but when you leave a in life insurance policy you can literally change the trajectory of your family they can pay for your funeral instead of having to raise the money through other people's savings or other people's money or go fund me and they also have money left over if you really choose the best policy for yourself and your family they can use that money to fund the education of your children or other family members they could use that money to pay off your home if you have a home and the mortgage isn't covered for whatever reason because you passed and you left debt. And this is ways that families can really allow what you work so hard to build stay in your family. Uh, individuals who don't have a will, don't have life insurance, they sometimes lose what they've worked hard for through the probate court process because there's nothing in place to allow or help that family keep those assets. And so that's the first thing you can do. And like I said, for some people it doesn't cost a lot of money to do it and life insurance has been proven to be a great way to pass on wealth. It is an instant increase in your family circumstances because If you get a $100,000 policy and your family didn't have $100,000 before, they have it now once you've passed. The other way to leave a legacy is to start investing in things that you can do now. Like, Like I said, my grandfather left me an individual retirement account, but you can also get a Roth individual retirement account. That's where you invest after tax dollars today. And it's able to be withdrawn in retirement tax-free, and it's also able to be passed on. So when you pass it on to your family members, they get to enjoy the tax-free status of that money. Uh, If you uh, are into real estate, real estate is an option, and you can leave uh, a goodwill that says what to do with the properties, and you could potentially split the properties up amongst family members, or you can leave it in a trust and allow your family to manage the properties through a trust once you've passed on. Um, There's so many ways and there's stocks and bonds and other ways, but I would say the first thing that I recommend is that you get life insurance. And then once you have that in place, really work with a professional on estate planning. And most people assume that I'm young. I really don't need a will. I don't need to think about estate planning. And I would say that's false. If you own assets then you need a will. So you have a house, other people may have a house and other assets, you need a will. And that should be a standard. And I think um, people who don't know that or don't realize that are really hurting their family because if something happens and your family now has to deal with everything, it puts them in a really bad position.
0: And I love this forward thinking conversation because even if we may be young right now, It's still important to have certain things in place so that we are set up in the future. And I know a lot of us are super busy and it's easy to get wrapped in a day to day, but these are definitely things to consider and think about in the future. So, Kwania, this was such, this was such an interesting conversation. I personally learned so much about real estate investing being a homeowner and just kind of shifting my mind frame and also about leaving a legacy behind and generational wealth. If the listeners want to connect with you, what is the best way to reach you? Check me out
1: at thepurposeofmoney.com and also on Instagram at thepurposeofmoney. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter with the same handles.